Welcome to the Emmanuel Baptist Church Podcast. We pray that the sermon you're about to hear would be useful as you grow in your love for God and your love for His church. Now, here's today's sermon. All right, turn to 1 John. If you would, we're going to be in there uh, this morning and for months to come. (laughs) Months to come. 1 John, we looked at last week the overview of the book. If you remember that, we looked at the whole book last week, looking at key themes and the major theme of knowing what we can know uh, that John talks about. Well, today we're going to start going verse by verse through the whole book, starting with chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to take our time through it as there is much in here that we need to consider and contemplate. So, 1 John chapter 1, verse, verse 1 through verse 4. And we're actually going to be looking at this, I think, this week and next week. There's so much in these four verses. Let me read it and we will go from there. This is what the Word of God says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We've seen it. We testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the Word of God. Amen. Um, I was talking to somebody this week, uh, part of our church, about the Lord of the Rings series. I don't think I've seen it for over 10 years, and so I gave a crack at it to understand what in the world's happening in those movies this week, and um, uh, I was even researching this week. Is this a fundamentally Christian movie and series? And in fact, they say it is. Um, in, in one of the movies, I think it's the third one, I'm going to butcher the name, so I'm just going to say this one guy did this and this other guy did that. Um, but and in one of the scenes, the third one, I think, The Return of the King, there's this little hobbit, and his name's Pippin. And Pippin knows about, so the, the king, I can't remember his name, but the king has a son. I think his name is Faramir, and supposedly dies in battle. Gets returned to the king. The king puts Faramir on a stack of lumber, and he's going to have a ceremonial burial for Faramir. Pippin, though, knows something. He knows that Faramir is not dead. He's alive. And his dad is about to make a grave mistake in burning Faramir alive. And so Pippin is losing his mind trying to tell everybody, you're making a mistake and no one's going to hear him. And so he runs to Gandalf and says, the king's gone mad. He's going to burn his son alive. So they get on a horse and they ride up triumphantly and burst through the doors, and the king doesn't want to hear anything that Pippin has to say. 
So he grabs the lantern, already covered his son and himself in oil that they might burn together, and he goes to throw it on the fire, lights the fire, and Pippin believes so much in the message that he needed to get out, that he jumped on the fire with Faramir just to get Faramir off, roll him off of the wood before he would burn alive. Why do I start with that? Well, what Pippin knew was so important to announce that he would announce it and stand up for it at any cost, including his life. What John has to say here in this text is actually a greater knowledge than what Pippin has. And John is willing to die just announcing it because people need to know what he knows. Not about Faramir, but about the word of life. So the title, as you can see there at the bottom of this sermon, is Seen, Heard, Proclaimed. Seen, Heard, Proclaimed. I'll give you an outline of the, of the time together that we have. First, we're going to consider who John came in contact with. Who John came in contact with. Secondly, how John came in contact with them. Thirdly, what John does after making that contact. Who, how, and what he does. Who, how, what he does. Let's consider the first one. Who does John come in contact with? And I can say emphatically that the Son of God, the Word of life, Jesus Christ. This is who John came in contact with. Now, I admit, and maybe you're looking at the text right now, and you're thinking, okay, the way John talks about what he came in contact with doesn't seem as much as a who as, as it does a what. Maybe we should be asking, what does John come in contact with? Is it a thing or a person? I mean, look at the way he talks about it in verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning. Not the one or the one whom was from the beginning. No, but that which was from the beginning in the verse 2. We have seen it. We testify to it. So is John really talking about a who? Or is he talking about a what? And I'd say when you start to examine the descriptions that John has for this one that he came in contact with, there's four descriptions I think he gives in these two verses. When you look at these four descriptions, I think we are able to see very clearly it is emphatically not a what, but a who, particularly Jesus Christ. That is the who that he comes in contact with. Look at the four descriptions that he gives of the one he comes in contact with. Starting in verse 1, he talks about the one who is from the beginning and the word of life. Let me read it. That which was from the beginning. Number one description. You've got to remember these. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, we've touched with our hands, concerning, here's the second description, the word of life. And then we get two more descriptions in verse 2. Made manifest and the one who's with the Father. The life was made manifest. We've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father. And it was made manifest to us. Okay, 
Consider these four descriptions in verses 1 and 2, and these teach us that it is in fact a who, not a what, that John comes in contact with. He comes in contact with one who is from the beginning, who is the word of life, who is made manifest, and who is with the Father. John gives these same four descriptions of who when he starts the Gospel, the Gospel of John. He, he says it about Jesus. If we turn to the Gospel of John, this is what we read in verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word. And you'll see there at the bottom of verse 3, the Word of what? The Word of life. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, a person. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, because he is the word of life. And the life was a thing of man. You might say, okay, well, yeah, in the beginning, I see that. With the Father or with God, I see that. The word of life, I see that. Where is the made manifest? If you just keep going in the Gospel of John to verse 14, we can see in the word, that is the word of life, became flesh. Another way of saying that, He was made manifest and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. And so we know because of the Gospel of John who He's talking about in the Epistle of John. The same one. Jesus Christ. Now, you might think, okay, details, details, Isaac. (laughs) But these details actually, these descriptions... They teach some important theology. And maybe you're like, I check out at that point. Just need the simple gospel. I'd encourage you, Jesus doesn't just want for you the simple gospel. He wants the gospel for you. But he wants you to fall in love with devouring his word. And that means being a lover of theology. And these four descriptions of Jesus, I think, teach us some important theology some information we know about our Savior, our Lord, our King, Jesus. In fact, we learn that He has, here's the theology, He has two natures. Jesus, our King, has two natures. He is both divine and human. 100% God, 100% man. And you're like, I don't know math, but that doesn't make sense. He is, in fact, 100% God, 100% man. We see that He is divine by saying, in the beginning, He was there. Before anything else, He created all things. He was in the beginning. He is, in fact, God. And not only in the beginning, but He was with the Father. He was with God and He was God, John 1, 1 says. So He is divine, but He's also The other nature, this is the deep theology, he's also 100% human. He was made manifest. Now, let me say something here, really important. There are theological hills to die on, and then there are hills that we can have peace while still disagreeing on them, right? I believe you don't have to Fight to the death on every hill theologically and still keep your conviction and dignity in what you believe. You don't have to die on every hill. Let me give you an example. 
the end times. I believe that the identity of the Antichrist, as we're trying to figure out which president candidate in every election series, which one he is, the identity of the Antichrist, or the time of the rapture, has it happened yet? Right? These things, I think, are far less important than the existence of the final judgment itself. The existence of the resurrection of all the saints. These things are important, and I think hills worth dying for, that the saints will be resurrected to new life one day, and sinners will face final judgment with God. These things are worth dying for, but the time of the rapture, where it lines up with the millennium, or the identity of the Antichrist, who it is, these are not hills worth dying on. Now let me tell you something very important. The dual nature of Jesus Christ is, in fact, a hill worth dying on. And you might think, it's nitty-gritty details, Isaac. Those nitty-gritty details are what permits you to enter God's holy presence one day. The nature of Jesus Christ is and is only your admission into eternity. And getting that right, I appreciate what Stephen Lawson says on the topic. He says, you can't be wrong about Jesus and still be right with God. The nitty-gritty details have just become a lot more important, haven't they? You can't be wrong about Jesus, hear me, and still be right with God. They matter. And his dual natures of both 100% man, 100% God, matters. It matters a lot. God has blessed Sarah and I with the opportunity, the privilege of knowing people of other walks of faith that we might, by God's grace, have some kind of impact on them. I can say names of Muslims that I'm friends with, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, And each one of these, I can say that I have had conversations about the nature of Jesus with them. And you say, ah, you're getting to the details. Well, those details are a matter of life and death for that person because I have been told from a Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, and a Muslim that they believe in the same Jesus as I do. We all all follow Jesus here. We all follow Jesus. Isaac, come on. Problem is, is their Jesus and my Jesus are not the same Jesus. So we're not following the same guy. And if they're not challenged and confronted with these wrong understandings of the person of Jesus, and and maybe you yourself have a wrong understanding of the person and nature of Jesus, if not challenged and confronted, such a person will die. One day, we all do. And they will come face to face with the true Jesus who will say, I never knew you. Who are you? I never knew you. These details matter. This is who John came in contact with. God, who is from the beginning and was with the Father. And man, who was made manifest. This is who. Now, how did John come in contact with Jesus? Verse 1 makes it very clear, doesn't it? In a tangible way. In a tactile way. He wants to emphasize 
the physicality of their interaction. He says that from the begin that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, which we've touched with our hands. You see, he saw Jesus, he heard Jesus, he talked with Jesus, he touched Jesus' skin. Thomas, when he touched the wound. John, when he laid back against him. And Jesus' physical nature is actually accounted for all throughout Scripture. Do you know that? It's an emphasis, I'd say, in Scripture. We see that in Galatians chapter 4, that Jesus was born naturally of a woman. Right? Paul writes, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, and he, he, he felt the urge by the Holy Spirit to write, born of a woman. See, Jesus was a man. We can see in Romans chapter 1, verse 3. That means that He has descendants. He has a heritage within the human race. Paul writes concerning His Son, God's Son, concerning His Son who was a descended from David according to the flesh. So He's born of a woman, descended from a lineage, particularly that of David. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, we see that He was, in the, he was like us in every physical way. Paul writes, but He, that is Jesus, emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of man. If you're like me, does your mind ever start to wonder? Does that mean, right? You ever thought that? Does that mean that he went to the bathroom? Right? I know everyone thinks that. You're a liar if you didn't think that. He had bad hair days. He had toothaches. Jesus? He got sick? He was made in the likeness of men. In a fallen world, he wept like we wept. He even emphasizes his own physicality, physical nature, after the resurrection to his doubting disciple. You know the story? In Luke 24, verse 39, we, say, we see that he says, See my hands, my feet, that it is myself, I myself. You touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He was born of a woman, a descendant of David. Even after the resurrection, he's saying, I am a physical man born in the likeness of men. Again, why make such a big deal about Jesus' physical nature? Well, John knows, and Paul knows, and we ought to know this very important truth. Salvation depends upon it. Your salvation depends upon the humanity of Jesus Christ, not just the divinity of Jesus Christ. Christ accomplishing pardon for sins. Him taking your place and you taking His does not just require a loving divine being, but a loving human being. He is both God and man. Think about this. Maybe you've never thought about this. If he was not born, if he was not born, then he's not human. 
Therefore, he's not able to sacrifice for sins of humans. Like, where is that? Hebrews chapter 2, you can see in verse 14, since the children, that is you and I, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, flesh and blood, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And if you continue reading verse 17, it's even more emphatic. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every aspect or respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. He had to. To be a priest who would mediate between God and man. So if he wasn't born by a woman, then he isn't human, therefore not able to sacrifice for sins. And not only his birth, but think about it. If he didn't physically die, if his death wasn't physical, then there's no resurrected body. And if there's no resurrected body, then you're still in your sins. That's what the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. The problem is, is what we learn is that, uh, we'll get to it later on in the book, 1 John. John is dealing with people that are hearing falsehoods about Jesus and they're starting to believe them. That's why he's writing the letter. It's because wolves in sheep clothing are coming in and telling falsehoods about Jesus and John knows this is life or death kind of stuff. This is not a hill of peace. This is a hill worth dying for. John knows that Jesus' human nature is a make it or break it for your salvation. And so he spends the first four verses saying, I came in contact with the word of life, the one who was with the Father, made manifest from the beginning, Jesus himself. And let me tell you, I saw him, I heard him. I even touched him. He is real. He is human. So that is how John came in contact with him. Now, this is the, this is the biggest part. It is who he came in contact with, how he came in contact with him. Now, what did John do after coming in contact with him? Who, how, what? He told others. There it is, guys. He told others. Let me read verse 2 into verse 3. He says, The life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and we testify to it. We've seen it, and we testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we do what? We proclaim to you. And he has a couple goals here that I want to I want to end with two primary goals he has in proclaiming and testifying. He mentions some desired outcomes. Firstly, in proclaiming what he has seen, heard, and touched, in proclaiming that, his first goal is that other, others would be added to the fellowship. It's for their benefit. It's not for his benefit, but for their benefit that he would proclaim so that they would be added to the fellowship. Let me read verse 3 here. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that. This is why I'm saying it, guys. This is why I'm proclaiming to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. 
Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He is proclaiming, firstly, for the benefit of others, that they might be added to the fellowship. You ever, you ever tell somebody, oh man, you've got to try this. And you're just like hoping that they like it as much as you do. And then it flops. Come on. I, uh, Sarah and I, in our, I, think it, I, yeah, I think it originated in living in Springfield for eight years. I, I just fell in love with many different ethnic cuisine, cuisine, cuisines, different foods. Um, shouldn't try to say words. It's a public speaker if you don't know those words. <laughs> it's awkward. <laughs> I fell in love with different types of foods from all around the world. And, um, I mean, Sarah and I love Ethiopian. We love uh, Indian and all, all these different things that maybe you've never had before. Maybe you have. And, um, It's really sad when, uh, when I say, oh, you've got to try it. You're going to love it. And I have someone try it, and like, hmm. You know, like grabs their napkin, you know, the, you know, the whole like casual spit it out look, you know. Just going to put that napkin down. Like, oh, good. Yeah. I'm so glad you like it. Yeah. Just really disappointing. It's like, oh, you don't like Thai food? What are you talking about? We, we want to tell people things that we're most excited about, and sometimes it flops and it falls on its face because we find that they don't find as much joy in it as we do. Let me just tell you though, when you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing the joy of your Creator, and knowing communion with Him, it'll never flop. At least if they come to know and appreciate what you appreciate, they will appreciate it just as much as you do. It's not a problem when people come to see the glory of God. When they start to see Him as sweet, just as you do. There's no disappointment there. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing when you see somebody come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But I need to say this. John knows something really important here. John knows that the people he's proclaiming to, if they don't know the true Jesus, again, what we were just getting into, if they don't know the true Jesus, the Jesus he's talking about right here, they can be friends, but they can't be in fellowship with each other. He can be their friend. I'd love to be your friend, but I can't have fellowship with you. Not if you don't know the true Jesus. John knows that. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. Paul writes, What accord does Christ have with Belial? That is the devil, another word for him. What accord does Christ have with the devil? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? You see, John wants fellowship with the people right in front of him. He says, I want fellowship with you. It's not that I don't want fellowship with you. I do. But you've got to know this Jesus. You've got to know this Jesus, the true Jesus. Otherwise, we'll be friends all day long. But once you know the true Jesus, that's when we can have fellowship. You know, 
Friendships can be forged by anything. Hobbies, interests, just sitting in the same classroom in school will give you a friendship. You have to have nothing in common. You can just sit next to each other. Same workplace. Maybe you guys got in the same fantasy league. Oh, I got a friendship out of it. Friendships can be forged by anything. Fellowship in the Bible is completely different. It's only forged by knowing the same Jesus, the true Jesus. This is why, just like practical outworking of this, this is why that we even read in the Bible Christians shouldn't even marry non-Christians. So maybe you're not married and you're considering some individuals. Well, I might, I don't know, I might be interested. Let me tell you the Bible's first rule on that. Can't be a non-Christian if you're a Christian. I was just reading 2 Corinthians 6, 15. If you back up and go to verse 14, it says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why? Why, Paul? What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? John proclaims the true Christ because he wants others to be in fellowship with him. And he knows you can have friendship, but not fellowship until you know the true Christ. And he wants fellowship with them. The second goal is not for their benefit, but for his benefit. He proclaims to them that he might have personal joy. Let me read the last verse for today. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You see, he has one purpose of proclaiming, and that's for their benefit, that they might have fellowship with God. And he's proclaiming for his benefit, saying, man, I want to find the joy in you having fellowship with God. Do you know that whenever you proclaim the gospel to somebody and they come to know God, it not only is to their benefit, but it's also for your joy. It's an amazing thing. This is the same joy that Paul had in leading the Philippians to Christ. Let me read Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, 16 sorry, through 17. Paul writes, hold fast to the word of life. See that? The word of life. Hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud. He's happy, elated, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. You see, them holding fast to the word of life brings pride to Paul's heart. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. It's like, guys, even if I die, <laughs> I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Why? Because they're holding the faith. Because they're in fellowship with God. And so it brings joy to the deliverer just as much as the recipient. This is because our heart should long for the salvation of fellow man. Can I just ask you this morning? I don't ask you any questions yet in the sermon. Do you long for the salvation of people around you? You have to. Charles Spurgeon said, winners of souls must first be weepers of souls. The problem is that our hearts can oftentimes grow numb to the eternity of others because we're so preoccupied with the temporary of ourselves. 
so concerned about right now, my struggles, my stress, my work situation, my car breaking down, my, 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 temporary, and it just grows us numb to the greater concerns of the eternity of another. So, let me just finish with saying, if you have experienced the living God, if you've come to know Him, if you've heard Him, you have a choice to make. You can keep that for yourself. You can enjoy God to some extent in seclusion. Let me tell you, that is a tragic decision. First off, you go against the famous song Sarah mentioned this morning. Hide it under a bushel. No. You, know, you can't do that. How can we go against the childhood songs that we grew up on? But worse, more seriously, if you do that, you're robbing others a fellowship with God, and you're robbing yourself from a special joy of them coming to know God. So I'd encourage you, do the opposite of keeping it to yourself and enjoying God in seclusion. I'd encourage you to announce it and proclaim it to others, making your joy complete, as verse 4 says, and them knowing the same God. I want to tell you, Francis Schaeffer, I don't know if you've ever heard that name before, he lived most of the 1900s. Famous, well-known Presbyterian pastor. And I was reading biographical work on him this week. And J.I. Packer said this about Francis Schaeffer. Think about these words. Within Francis Schaeffer was the passionate persuasiveness of a prophet who hurries in to share with others what he himself sees. Packer continues to say, Schaefer saw himself as an evangelist called to speak the truth with an uncompromising urgency to resolve people who are in real trouble and whose lives are broken. That's what Packer had to say about Schaefer. And I tell you what, I hope when I'm dead and gone, people would say similar things about Isaac Worley. Do you want that about you? Uncompromising. Urgency. Really hope that is the testimony of not just myself, but many of us in this church. But if you aren't there yet, if you haven't come to meet in a real way the Jesus of the Bible, I'd encourage you, meet him today. Experience the living God today. Did, did, and maybe, did something stir within you? During any of this time, the worship music or the sermon, did something stir within you? Did something tug on your heart? Let me just tell you, it wasn't a thing. It's not a what. It's a who. It's the Holy Spirit. He's a person. And He's drawing you to God. I'd encourage you to respond to that. If you're feeling that, Him working, respond. Lay down your life to His leadership. To follow Him. To worship Him. To trust Him. To look up to Him. And maybe you need help doing that because you don't know what that looks like in your life. That's okay. I'd encourage you to pray with someone here today. There will be people in the front. Those would be great people to pray with. Pray with me. If you just need someone to explain it, talk through what all this means, I'd love to do that as well after service. But come to meet 
the living word so that you can proclaim it to others to their benefit and yours. Let me pray. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. If you live in or near Bethany, Missouri, we invite you to join us for our worship services held on Sunday morning and Sunday evenings, as well as our various activities on Wednesday nights. For more information on how you can get involved, visit our website at bethanyibc.com. 